Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Oh, it is a truly glorious night here in Ottawa. I was raving about the weather yesterday. It has nothing on today. As I walked through the Byward Market, the patios were full. Full of normal people, not the crazy ones that'll scare you. (sighs) Walking around with no jacket on. Not quite with no shirt on weather yet, but you don't want to see me with no shirt on anytime. Trust me. Just trust me on that. Most of the people that go topless, do you ever notice this, men or women? Most of the people that go topless probably really shouldn't be going topless. But they do. We're going to be talking about politics tonight. I know it's Friday, but there's still, for some reason, an awful lot of politics to be dealt with. Uh, we're also going to have some fun. Um, Elias Elzane's a producer here at this station, and he is an L.A. Laker nut bar. Loves them. Crazy for the Lakers. So his big night was when Kobe played his last game, retired. We're going to talk to him about that. I just want to point out it's 141 days, 20 hours, 21 minutes, and 7 seconds, and counting down until the the best event in the sporting calendar happens, and that's uh, Notre Dame kicks off their, their football season against Texas A&M on September the 4th. Uh, Kentucky Derby, if you're a Derby fan, it's just 21 days away. That's right. 21 days, 23 hours, and 24 minutes until the Kentucky Derby. The fastest two minutes in sports, the best two minutes in sports. But right now, I want to bring up an issue of uh, judges overstepping their bounds again. I want to bring up an issue of judges deciding that they're the real rulers in this country. Not not Parliament, not you and I, not the sovereign people. They are our lords, and they will decide what is good for all. And to heck with what Parliament says. Because they struck down another mandatory minimum today. They struck down another attempt by Parliament to say, you know what, you judges, you're not doing your job. You're not doing your job because you are letting people out of jail too early. You are not taking the issue of punishment seriously enough. And we've got a rotating, we've got a revolving door. People are out before they're even in. So there was this attempt to say, hey, let's crack down on this. Let's give uh, stronger sentences. Mm, Not in Canada. By the way, this idea that the conservatives are the ones that dreamt up this idea of mandatory minimums, it's actually false. Liberals had plenty of mandatory minimums that they passed in their day. This has been a long-standing thing in Canadian law. But we know the conservatives are tough on crime, right? They're really tough. I mean, they basically call for locking up everyone and throwing away the key and just having conservatives walk around outside free, right? That's that's what they want because they like a police state. Again, uh, the reality and facts don't back that up. So this mandatory minimum for repeat drug offenders is what was struck down today. Not someone caught with a couple of joints, not someone 
caught with drugs for their own personal use, whatever the drug may be. No, someone trafficking in drugs, someone being a pusher for Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 narcotics. And you have to be convicted more than once to get the mandatory minimum. But the Supreme Court today said this minimum sentence was cruel and unusual punishment. That's what they actually said when they struck it down in a 6-3 to three decision. So what do you think the, the length of the mandatory minimum was? It must have been real harsh, like five years. Or, no, it had to be 10. Maybe it was a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. I mean, because they called it cruel and unusual punishment for repeat drug offenders. So it's got to be something real big, right? How about one year? A one-year sentence for someone convicted multiple times of trafficking in drugs, of pushing drugs on addicts, pushing drugs on the most vulnerable, pushing drugs on your kids. Parliament had passed a one-year mandatory minimum, and the robed gods of the Supreme Court struck it down as cruel and unusual punishment. The guy who brought this case forward, the culprit, the convict in it, is a guy named Joseph Ryan Lloyd, convicted of trafficking in crack, heroin, and meth. Okay? These are serious drugs that the court acknowledges do real harm, real harm to everyone involved. But yet they said a one-year mandatory minimum is too much. Then they turned around and gave him a one-year sentence. So what were they doing? Well, they were playing God. They were deciding that they are the true rulers of Canada, that they are the sovereign rulers of Canada, that Parliament shouldn't have a say. Have you ever noticed that judges never strike down mandatory maximum sentences? They whine, they bitch, they vetch about the idea of a mandatory minimum. Well, yeah, that just ties our hands. You can't tie our hands. We're judges. We're independent. You can't do that to us. All right. Strike down a maximum sentence. You tell me that the rapist murdering SOB in front of you deserves more than 25 years and give him 30 or 40. Go ahead. I dare you if you truly believe in your independence. But the fact is, the judges don't. So they won't do that. They will never do that. Now, I want to make it clear to everyone, okay? If you're thinking of calling in later or emailing me, and the email address is beyondthenews at CFRA.com, If you want to say, Brian, the problem's liberal judges, then let me point this out to you. A six to three decision. Five, five of those judges were appointed by conservative prime ministers. Four of them by Stephen Harper. One of them by Brian Mulroney. Suzanne Cote, Thomas Cromwell, Andromash Karakastanis, and Michael Moldaver all appointed by Stephen Harper. Rosalia Bella is the only liberal appointee on there. She was appointed by Paul Martin. Beverly McLaughlin appointed way back in 88 by Brian Mulroney. The three that voted against this, that dissented, uh, Gascon, Wagner, and Brown, they were all appointed by Harper as well. Because seven of the current nine judges were appointed by Stephen Harper. But it's still not a conservative court. Mark my words, in this coming leadership race, we must make the issue of judicial appointments and judicial philosophy an issue. What 
kind of judges will you appoint? Because four of these ones said a one-year mandatory minimum were appointed by Stephen Harper. And I can sing the praises of Stephen Harper as well as the next guy. But one area he fell down on was appointments, in particular court appointments. Do you think that one year is cruel and unusual punishment for a repeat drug trafficker? Because I don't. And I'm willing to bet that the majority of Canadians don't either. So over at the Rebel, we're doing what we do. We're launching a petition, and we're trying to get a poll going. So we launched the website, jaildrugdealers.ca, and asking for your help. Sign the petition. Post it on Facebook. If you can chip in to help out pay for a poll, we want to get a poll in the field Monday morning. We want to show the judges that they're offside on this because I'm convinced that they are. I'm convinced that they're offside, and they're going to claim it's a charter issue, that this violates Section 12 of the charter. And yet, we'll talk about this with uh, Professor Troy Riddell from University of Guelph. He's coming up. He's an expert specialist in judicial and constitutional politics. The fact is, they were dealing in hypotheticals, not the case before them. They were dealing in hypotheticals so that they could arrive at the decision they wanted. Our justices are political. Just as much as anyone else's, don't let them claim that they're apolitical, that they're just out there to look out for the law. No, they've got their own agenda. And we need to start electing people that will appoint judges that have the right agenda. So if you think that it is utter craziness to say that someone convicted twice of dealing crack, heroin, meth, if you think it's craziness... For a judge to say a one-year mandatory minimum is cruel and unusual punishment for a repeat drug offender, then I want you to go to jaildrugdealers.ca. It's up at the Rebel as well. It'll be on my Facebook page in minutes. jaildrugdealers.ca. Sign the petition and share it. Help us show the judges how wrong they are. Because when we get the, the signatures, when we get the poll results, I will be going up to the Supreme Court to deliver it to them and tell them how wrong they are myself. More on this in a few minutes. Back after these breaks and then a little bit of an update on some U.S. politics. Some new music tonight because it's a glorious summer, almost summer night. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Baby, I'm worth it. Oh, I'm worth it. Give me, give me, I'm worth it. Give it to me, I'm worth it. I'm thinking that maybe this should be the, uh, the theme song for those families that are out there fighting against the Wynn government for funding for autism, for intensive therapy for their autistic children because it was promised to them. And because we live in a system where you can't go out and buy insurance for medical care. We don't have that system. The government took that away. 
And if you can buy outside care, because of our system, it's going to be much more expensive. It's very different than if you lived in the United States and the average family would have medical insurance that they bought and paid for. The government is the provider. The government is the insurer of our health care system. And then they promise things and they take them away. And that's what they've done with autism. And so across the province today, there were these protests, and you've been hearing about them all day in the news. Alison Sandor was out at the one in front of uh, Yasser Nakvi's office. And I want to bring you a couple of those clips the, of, of people that she spoke with. I haven't had to deal with uh, people on the autism spectrum in my family to this degree. But this is an issue that we've had to deal with. But when I, I've met people, I've known others who have children who are further along the autism spectrum that need an awful lot of care, an awful lot of therapy. Often we're talking about people that without help will be those that we must take care of because they can't take care of themselves. So when they're adults, when their parents can't take care of them anymore, it's going to be up to us as a society. And so we can invest now or we can invest later. Or maybe we can just w warehouse people again. Who knows? Who knows what the plans from Kathleen Wynn are? But Chelsea Metcalf says, you know what? If her eldest son, Rylan, was receiving intensive autism therapy, that, that he needs it. He's received it. It's worked. It's worth doing. What it did for him is amazing. Um, ultimately, what it has meant for our family is that we were able to keep him home and not have to put him into foster care due to his complex needs. Now, my youngest son is five years old, and he has just begun receiving IBI services, and just two weeks ago, his, he was terminated. The ministry hasn't given our IBI team even an even idea of what's going to come for my son. There's this wait list, wait list, wait list, and a whole bunch of unknowns. So it's this cause, I'm just shaking. Like it, it really, truly is upsetting to me that my youngest son is going to be denied this therapy that we can never afford 60,000 plus a year for this service and everything's in the unknown it's time to stop playing political football with this these families have been a political football in ontario for too long if this was a trendier very politicized issue that one party over the other had picked up especially the progressive side of course they'd be funding this of course. But that's not what's happening. Instead, it's been used particularly by the liberals because they've been in since 2003 as this started to become a way that parents looked to help their children with intensive behavior therapy. They looked at it and the liberals said, we will provide it to you. And they've gone back and forth and cut and changed. And people like Anna uh, Janovich's uh, family they're stuck in the middle. Her, her son, she says, benefits from IBI. Let's be clear. They're absolutely right that the younger a kid is addressed and get given intervention, the better. But for kids that are older, whether it's due to diagnosis, whether it's because uh, they've been on wait lists for a long time, this is the difference between becoming an independent adult and not. It's a huge difference. It's been shown in their own studies, whether it's Ministry of Children and Youth Services, Auditor General report, Ombudsman's reports, they know that there's a big difference between what happens if a child doesn't get this kind of intervention or gets lesser intervention and gets uh, the actual treatment that they need. 
There are an awful lot of protests that go on where I have no time for the people showing up and saying, we want more money, we want more money. There's always a protest of people saying, we want more money. I have time for these families, and it's time to stop treating them like dirt. It's time to stop using them as a political football. Now, now to politics of a different kind. Uh, When Pope Francis was elected, or shortly thereafter, I happened to be in Dallas, Texas, um, I had uh, meetings with people down there, and I was over at Glenn Beck's studio at The Blaze. And I was on my way. I, I just left, and I got a call from Glenn, or from his producer, saying, oh, Brian, you're Catholic. Can you come in? We, we need someone else to, to join our panel and talk about Pope Francis and whether he is a socialist. And it's because of comments that were being made. And I went on TV that night with Glenn, and I said, I'm not really sure he's a socialist, but you've got to remember he comes from Argentina. They have a different experience with capitalism. And now I'm just being proven wrong in that I think Pope Francis actually is. And another another piece of evidence could be inviting Bernie Sanders to the Vatican conference because Bernie Sanders is a socialist. And you don't hear about a whole lot of politicians being invited to address the Vatican. But Bernie Sanders is there. He's taking time away from his campaign to go hang in Pope Francis's house. The first Jewish candidate to win a presidential primary is calling his trip to Rome an opportunity that comes once in a lifetime. It's a strong enough pull to take him away from New York just days before that state's primary. Sanders is speaking at a Vatican conference that is steeped in his lifelong passions of economic and social justice and reflects his admiration for Pope Francis. The editor of the Jesuit magazine America says Sanders' trip is unlikely to have much of an impact on Catholic voters, noting that conferences like the one he's attending happen all the time. I'm Sandy Kozell. Uh, speaking of socialists, the good old Jesuits over at America Magazine. Yeah, another bunch of socialists. So Bernie Sanders, he's got me worried about the Pope. I want to play a little bit of um, a fun skit that's going to be on the Tonight Show tonight. I believe it's tonight. Um, it was taped earlier today. Ted Cruz, the Republican presidential hopeful, dropped by the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and did a skit where Fallon's playing Donald Trump, and it's called Donald Trump's Phone Call with Ted Cruz. You'll see it online. You'll see it on Facebook and elsewhere. But listen in as they're talking about what to do about the border. First of all, we need to put an end to President Obama's amnesty. Well. (laughs) And I believe we need to secure the border once and for all. Once and for all. And start enforcing the rule of law. Law spelled backwards is law. <laughs> Good on Cruz for that. And uh, Fallon's not my favorite. I prefer Kimmel over Fallon, but that one was was pretty darn good. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. I'm going to try and light it up throughout the night because it's Friday, right? It's Friday. We got to. But when we come back, a little more from uh, on that court decision from a. a an academic, someone not quite as hot-headed as me. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580 CFRA. 
Well, you've heard my rant on the Supreme Court's decision to say that a one-year mandatory minimum sentence is just too much, that it's cruel and unusual punishment for repeat drug offenders. Let's talk to somebody who studies this and see if I'm off base or maybe a little, maybe I'm crazy. Uh, Troy Riddell is an associate professor at the University of Guelph and specializes in judicial and constitutional politics. Professor Riddell, thanks for your time tonight. Great to be here. What's your reaction to... the? Courts in general seem to be rejecting the idea of mandatory minimums. They've been around a long time. This was not a new Harper government uh, invention. They've been around a long time. Right. But they keep striking them down. I've yet to see a judge strike down a maximum sentence. Right. Uh, there's, early on in the charter years in 1987, the Supreme Court also struck down a drug-related mandatory minimum offense. And then after that, though, there was a period of time where they were actually upholding some mandatory minimum sentences. So you might recall the case of Robert Latimer, who killed his severely disabled daughter, and he suggested that a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence for that, for second-degree murder, was unconstitutional in his case, cruel and unusual punishment, and the Supreme Court uh, decided against him. There was also the case of a police officer who was engaged in a scuffle with an offender, and uh, his gun discharged, and he was accused of uh, manslaughter using a firearm with a mandatory minimum of four years. And the Supreme Court also held up um, that mandatory minimum. But then last year, there was a mandatory minimum for, um, in terms of how one, or is a gun-related mandatory minimum in the Nura case, and the Supreme Court uh, struck that mandatory minimum down, and then again today did so. So there's been a it started out by striking them down. Then there was a period where they were upheld a little bit. And now we seem to be in another phase where they've been struck down. And I just I'll conclude by this part by saying that uh, the the language in this decision today suggests that others will fall as well because the the Supreme Court, the majority, seem to indicate quite strongly that unless there's what they call a safety valve to address sort of unusual cases that that where the mandatory minimum shouldn't apply then it sounds like those are going to be unconstitutional. Isn't that, though, where um, the discretion of the prosecutors come in? We're talking the law that was passed was, and this is this is a frustration that citizens express to their politicians, then politicians are duly elected leaders expressed through legislation. Right. The frustration being that there could be a revolving door in the justice system, and this was to address repeat drug traffickers, not people with a little bit of pot and someone that passed a joint to their friend. Right. The guy in this case was trafficking in crack, meth, and heroin. Right. Um, so how do they arrive? I've, I've read chunks of the decision, mm-hmm. and I still don't understand how they can take terms like cruel and unusual punishment right. and apply it to repeat offenders when it is a one-year term. They, by the way, in this case today, they still gave Joseph Lloyd... A one-year sentence. Right, yeah. In in the case last year of Nearer, the, the gun-related uh, Which was a horrible decision. Uh, well, yes, and in this case, um, you in both cases, the the judges felt that the sentence was, was actually was equal to the mandatory minimum or greater than, and they thought that was okay. So in both of these cases, the, Supreme, the majorities who have struck down the law have relied upon what's called a reasonable hypothetical. Well, it didn't happen in this case, but you can maybe foresee a case in which, for example, someone is just passing some joints to their buddies, and the cops come in and find that and charge them with trafficking, and then they might get a year in jail for this. And, and the majority said that would be considered grossly disproportionate and, and so on. Whereas, so, like in the NER case, 
like in the Nur case. They are, yeah. They're making up hypotheticals because right. the Nur case, this was, uh, this was a guy who had a pistol in his pants mm-hmm. with 23 rounds in the pistol between the magazine and the chamber, and the chamber was loaded. He had 23 rounds in a loaded gun outside a community center. When he was chased, he dropped it, threw it away. Uh, and so he was facing a three-year mandatory minimum. They used a hypothetical, this could possibly happen, to strike down a mandatory minimum for a guy like that. To me, these are being activist political judges that are thumbing their nose at Parliament and the parliamentary authority that they operate under. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, one, it, certainly that is the case. They're taking, uh, striking down laws that were passed uh, by Parliament. And, but back Back to your earlier point about the um, crown discretion, both the dissenting opinions in both Nira and this case we're talking about uh, today, um, it so happens that the dissenters sort of suggested, as you did, that in real life, these folks would not, the reasonable hypotheticals would be dealt with through crown discretion. So in Nira, the majority talked about someone who's at a cabin and they forgot that they, their permit only applies to you know their, their urban residents. And, and therefore, they're tra- caught up in this mandatory minimum sentence. And then today, you know, the hypothetical about someone just, um, uh, you know, giving a joint or two to their to their friends. And again, the dissent today said that, you know, realistically, the, that kind of case is not going to be moved uh, forward. So, so there is so there the, there's a particular frustration amongst some folks in that the Supreme Court is striking these laws down when they can't actually find a, a real live case in which there has been, in the court's opinion, a grossly disproportionate outcome. So there, there's that sort of frustration that laws are being struck when the facts before the courts are suggesting that the laws are not grossly disproportionate, and, and that seems to be a big bone of contention among some. Uh, l- let, me, let me throw out a hypothetical to you. Do you ever foresee a judge saying that uh, a maximum sentence of 10 years or 25 years for a crime is not enough in striking that down to give someone a 30-year sentence? Yeah, no, no, there's no, there'd be nothing in the charter to, um, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't foresee that happening, no. Uh, but, I mean, they're, they're always complaining about judicial discretion, but they only complain about it one way, Professor. Right, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a, that's a fair point. Um, is but, there a recourse that Parliament has for frustrated people like myself? Well, there's, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good question about the rec- what the recourse would be. My my suggestion would be I'm, uh, you know, I I see the where the desire for mandatory minimums come from in the sense of harmonizing uh, sentencing practices to some degree, also uh, making sure that the punishment reflects what the community believes is an apt, uh, you know, an apt punishment for certain crimes. Um, having said that, I can see where there are certain cases in which you. They're just, the facts of the case are, are just so out there that you might want to have that discretion to not apply the mandatory minimum. To me, a much better system would be what they have in Britain, where they have a series of sentencing guidelines. So if certain criteria are met, judges have to start at a certain point, say uh, three years for a certain crime, say a gun-related crime or what have you, and then the sentence goes up or down from there according to a set of criteria that are established in these regulations. And there's a sentencing council that's made up of lay people, lawyers, judges, and other folks who sort of help have input into what these sentence, sentence, ranges, sentence ranges should be. 
the council is also asked to sort of keep statistics on how these uh, penalties are being applied. So then you have some feedback as to, okay, is there more consistency? Who is de- what judges are deviating? Do they seem to have good reasons for deviating or not? And there's, there's, a, there's an accountability and feedback loop. So I think that's, to me, a better system between a system of sort of wide open judicial discretion and one in which there are mandatory minimums where you may have these cases that, that, are, that percolate their way up that just may not fit with what you know, individuals felt uh, generally should be an apt punishment. All right. Uh, Professor Riddell, uh, out of time, but thanks for, um, thanks for your time tonight. And that's not a bad suggestion, maybe something the Parliament can look at in the future, because the Great. judges are obviously saying no to the other side. Thanks right. for your time. Thank you. All right. Professor Troy Riddell with the University of Guelph and their political science department. I'm Brian Lilly. Do you have thoughts on this, on this whole issue of of where judges are going with mandatory minimums? Beyond the news at CFRA.com. We'll open up the phone lines on it later. But for now, use the email beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Tell me what you think. Back after this. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Glorious night. The sun just starting to set in the Byward Market. I think I'm just going to leave for the rest of the show and go sit on a patio. I think that, no, of course not. But if you're doing it, I'll watch you. Not that that's creepy at all. Don't call the cops. Don't tell my mother. Earlier in the show, I was playing audio from some of the parents at the uh, the protest outside of Yasser Nakvi's office, and I want to go back to that topic for the rewind today. This is the part of the show where we try and pick up on something that somebody else had elsewhere, because we know you can't listen all day. I can't listen all day, but I'm in and out, and I hear good things, and I you know, think, okay, got to share that with people. Earlier today, Evan Solomon had on two parents who are dealing with this autism issue, and one of them... One of them, you may have heard clips of her yelling from the gallery at Queen's Park the other day. So here now, Evan Solomon's interview with uh, Shannon Charlebois and Tanya Corey, two mothers dealing with this battle between parents, families living with autism in the province that keeps jerking them around on whether they're going to fund it. It's been an absolutely emotional day. Protests across the country, across the province rather, on autism. And this, of course, has been an issue after the Ontario government announced what first some thought was a good thing. The Ontario Autism Program, $333 million over five years. They sold it that it was reducing wait times and improving services to kids with autism, which is a spectrum. There's lots of different kids on different on the spectrum. It's not one thing. But it turns out it wasn't all that. It was cracked up to be, according to many people, especially since children over the age of five will no longer qualify for a very important therapy called IBI. And for families are furious about this. They've been on wait lists for years to get their kids in this intensive behavioral intervention, which is very expensive. And then suddenly the province is saying, sorry, it's not there. Joining me now, two women that we've spoken to before, Tanya Corey, the mom of Lucas, Lucas has autism, he's on the spectrum, and Shannon Charlebois, the mother of Xander, also with 
autism. And and Tanya and Shannon, great to have you both back in the program. Thank Hi, you. Thanks. Let me start with you. Glad to be here again. It's great to be with uh, both of you. I'm getting a lot of emails, uh, a lot of letters from people. Uh, I've spoken to politicians about this. I spoke to Kathleen Wynne about it, and I'll play you her clip in a minute. But, Tanya, let me start with you. What was it like today at the protest? What are you hearing back from, from anything from the government or from other, par- other parents? Um, well, nothing from the government, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised at this point. Um, but from the other parents, uh, we're not going to stop fighting. Um, these are our children. Our children deserve the services that uh, that, that we've been that they've been waiting for, and uh, we're and we're not going to stop fighting. It's only the beginning. Only the beginning, Shannon Charlebois. Uh, is that the same for you? This is what we're seeing today is not going to end. Uh, yeah, you know. Um... No, this is only the beginning. And I mean, (laughs) Wynne and, yeah, I'm going to use the word again, Wynne and her goons, you know, they're probably banking on us being too exhausted to keep fighting, uh, you know, and we are exhausted and and we are devastated. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, nobody knows stamina better than an ASD parent. So, so, you know, buckle up, Wynne, because this is uh, this is only the beginning. We're not going to back down. Shannon, you and I spoke yesterday and then I spoke uh to Kathleen Wynn, as, yeah. as you know, or on, on yeah. sorry, on Wednesday. Let me yeah. play you a clip of Kathleen Wynn. And I told her, I'd ask. Oh, joy. The, yeah, well, I asked that you, you said, ask her these questions. And we had, a, I'm not going to play the entire part of the interview on that, but here's okay. one clip when I asked her what she's going to do and how she justifies these changes. Here's what she said. Uh, I want every child in Ontario to have the service that they need. So taking, finding $333 million to put in place a new program and to deal with a situation where, remember, we've got a waiting list where kids are sitting without service for years. That is unconscionable. It is unconscionable that kids would not get any service. And that's what's happening. So we have to help people make a transition into uh, services that are right for their kids. And I know, you know, I was the Minister of Education. I know that it is, uh, it is very, very hard to imagine when your child is getting IBI, getting that intensive service, that there could possibly be another uh, service that would be as good. And she says there are going to be some. Shannon Charleville, what do you what do you answer to that? <laughs> My answer to that is that it is unconscionable, okay, to 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 allow kids to to wait on the waiting list for you know up to four years. I mean that that was our experience four years for IBI. Um, that's what's unconscionable, and it's her fault. It's it's their fault. Exactly. They, you know, like we're. We did what we were told. We waited our turn and with faith in our government, and this is what we get? No, don't tell me that it's unconscionable to, to leave kids on the waiting list when you're the one who put them there to begin with. Okay, well, what, what can you do, though? I mean, you say this is just the beginning, Tanya Corey. You've heard Kathleen win. What can you do then? We just have to keep fighting. Um, and well, how do you do that? Well, I, I mean, I get the protest, but... You know, doing the letters, getting the petition signed, and that's only the beginning. What really has to happen is real change. Real change in the form of taking 
this money that they're apparently putting into the program, which in fact is way less than what was invested in the past. Um, so it's not as big an investment as, uh, as it has been in the past. And uh, what needs to happen is that money has to go directly to the parents to get the funding they need. Direct funding is what needs to happen. It's about a third of the cost to the government, and there will be no wait list. The fact that there's are, there are kids on the wait list to begin with is the fault of the program that's in place right now. Okay, so now you've got the NDP on side. Tanya Corey, yeah. I'm sorry, right? And, and, and the Conservative Party as well. The Conservative Party's on side. Now, again, yeah. I've spoken to Kathleen Wynne directly, and you hear she says, look, this is a transition. There are just as good services, and we're trying to put the money to this. And, and, and I know, Shannon, you, you just don't, absolutely don't buy it. Is it really, unless they read the, and, I, and I, by the way, and I'm reading the Alliance Against the Ontario Autism Program, one of the things they say is that the optimum learning window is between two and four, they, they don't buy that. They say that that's absolutely not true. Is the point here, unless you get IBI access fully funded, yeah, it's just not going to work for you? Who are you asking? I'm asking Shannon. Shannon. Oh, okay. Sorry. Can you repeat that, please? I, in other words, I'm just trying to get what you want from, from the premier. Is it give back fully funding uh, to families for, for kids at any age for IBI? Absolutely. Yes. That's, that's what you want. It's that, that's the red line. Nothing less. Nothing less. I mean, my, no, no. And, you know, and I, and I really, I just, I don't want my kid to be kicked out of the program. I don't want Xander booted out. They call it transitioning. You know, that's just a, that's just a polite word of saying we're, we're giving your kid the boot. Like, really. All right. That was uh, Shannon Charlebois and uh, Tanya Corey on with Evan Solomon earlier today. Families being used as political footballs, and I feel for them. I mean, I, it's got to be horrible. This is treatment that you think we'll be able to help you, the the doctors and the experts say could help you and your child as your child grows older when we all know that one day our kids will move out or we won't be able to take care of our kids. Can you imagine wondering what's going to happen to your child when you can't look after them anymore, when they're an adult? Would they be able to do it? And you've got this treatment sitting there. Heart-wrenching. Anthony Fury is on deck to talk about the... Uh, the issue of the Governor General, we touched on it last night. He has a column out in the Ottawa Sun and other uh, Sun papers today. Uh, Elias Elzane talking about Kobe Bryant and Faith Goldie on what she found. Her story's been released now. We can we can bring you some of the audio of that. And in the meantime, during the break, <coughs> yep, I just ran over to Bottega on the break. I'm going to have more Aranciata. I, I'm thinking I'm Italian tonight. I got my, uh, got my pecorino. Romano, I got my arancciata, some salami, some prosciutto, and some buns. This is heaven. I'm Brian Lilly. This is actually beyond the news, not heaven. Uh, heaven is a hole in her heart. I'm Brian Lilly. This is beyond the news. Back in moments. Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. It's a topic that I brought up yesterday, and many of you wanted to call in on it, and many of you did comment. Governor General 
David Johnson, a man that I have a lot of respect for, a man who appears very intelligent, very caring, very wise in many respects, doing something out of the ordinary in my view, and that was jumping into political partisan issues in an interview with the state broadcaster and Peter Mansbridge. He talked about it being small minded Canadians who opposed in a cab, even though that was the overwhelming majority of Canadians. Well, Anthony Fury is writing about this for Sun Media Newspapers today. He joins me now. Anthony, thanks for taking the time. Always a pleasure to be on your show, Brian. Uh, let me ask you, you, you reached out and said what to the governor general's office? What, what did you put to them and what kind of reaction did you get? Yeah, I got in touch with their office because I found this story just so bizarre. First, that the governor general would say that a, a public policy issue and views that the overwhelming majority of Canadians hold can be small-minded, and that Peter Mansbridge didn't really call him on it, and that the CBC story saying, oh, by the way, this is what he said, didn't acknowledge that these were partisan comments and a major shocker for him to say. So I just put to the question uh, to, to his office, do you not view this as a uh, as a partisan comment? You know, can you please explain why the GG made this comment? And I also asked, does the GG have any remarks for Canadians who might feel that he called their, their values or their political perspectives small-minded? That was what I asked them. Okay, I mean, a couple of comments, and I mentioned this last night, is, you know, Mansbridge seemed to to know what the GG was thinking during the middle of the election, because in the lead up to the question, he said, you appeared worried last fall. Well, I think they must hang out at the same cocktail parties or something, because uh, yeah. I don't remember the GG making any comments during the election. I didn't see any. Uh, we did media searches at the Rebel looking to find out had he made any public comments we could find, and we couldn't find them. So obviously, they have some kind of social life together like Mansbridge has with uh, uh, Trudeau's uh, director of communications. Fine, fair enough. But that's probably why Mansbridge didn't call him on it. He views it in the very same way. This is elitist opinion. One elitist talking to another elitist about what the, the great unwashed think. They're not going to see it as, as bad. They're not going to see it as him stepping out into political territory. No, I, I agree. And in the statement that the GG provided to me by Maria Evlaterno, uh, she says that the governor general is nonpartisan and apolitical. Well, that's what their website says. But she said as part of their responsibility as bringing Canadians together, GGs play a key role in promoting national identity by supporting and promoting Canadian values, diversity, inclusion, culture, and heritage. He did not address this topic in a partisan and apolitical way. He focused on Canadian values and identity. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so you're saying by rejecting a certain position on the Cobb, it's not a partisan issue. You're just you're just affirming Canadian values. Well, I, I'm sorry, Brian, but but standing up for Canadian values is actually a very partisan view because depending on which party and and which perspective you have, you're gonna have different views of Canadian values. And a lot of Canadians think that showing this sort of overt religiosity towards Islam while you're Giving your citizenship oath betrays Canadian values. And and let's face it, if you were talking about hockey and maple syrup, that's apolitical. These are things that we almost all agree on. But we did a poll in the middle of this, and there was not a single poll done that showed Canadians supported the idea of wearing in a cab during a citizenship ceremony. But we did one ourselves from the Rebel. 1,505 Canadians 
uh, polled using a, a national online panel, September 16th and 17th, margin of error, plus or minus 2.5 percentage points, 19 times out of 20. Let's get that out of the way. And now the results. 78% of Canadians agree that you should have to remove any face covering, including a Muslim niqab or burqa when you're being sworn in as a Canadian citizen. And that was 61% strongly agree, Anthony. 16% moderately agree. Uh, and you know, so that obviously cuts across partisan lines. That cuts across geographic lines. The lowest support was was British Columbia, where only 67% agreed with it. Uh, even Ontario, 73% agreed you should show your face while taking the oath of citizenship. How is he not stepping into something, telling those overwhelming majority of Canadians that they're wrong? Two major problems with his statement. One is he says in the original statement on CBC, I continue to worry about any initiatives that would cause us to be small-minded and to lose that sense of inclusiveness, fairness, equality of opportunity. Well, if you look back to a speech Justin Trudeau made a few months ago on the niqab, not a few months ago, a few months before the election, on the niqab issue, he used very similar buzz phrases. And of course, one of the things the liberals are very good at doing is they frame the debate and they don't pretend they're arguing for liberal values or a specific uh, policy or partisan issue. They just say, no, we're just we're just advocating the mainstream and truth and inclusiveness as if their ideas are the ideas that are natural, hence the natural governing party term that they hold. And it seems like David Johnston is just speaking like some sort of advocate for the natural governing party. I, I'm not accusing him of being a liberal shill. It's just that's how it slices. The second thing that's really worrying me about this is it seems like uh, the governor general is engaging in some historical revisionism. He's saying Canadians rejected this. Well, they actually didn't, as the rebel poll shows, the government's poll shows, the polls that the CBC promoted show, vast, overwhelming majority of Canadians supported the Nikah ban, and as exit polling has shown, it was not actually a decisive issue in Trudeau's election. Harper was booted for other reasons not to do with this. Yeah, uh, it's complete revisionist history saying by voting uh, for parties other than Stephen Harper, they were rejecting that. That's revisionist history, and uh, unfortunately it goes on far too often. I think if you polled Canadians today, they would still, in an overwhelming fashion, say that they're opposed to it. And this despite elites like Peter Mansbridge and the Governor General and the media onslaught, I... I how many people in the media will say something in English Canada other than those that oppose the niqab ban are bigots? In Quebec, they had a full-on debate about this. But in most of English can Canada, they tried to downplay it and say, if you were opposed to it, you were some kind of bigot out of step with Canadian values. Which is odd because a number of Muslims actually supported this ban. A number of sects of Islam, like Ismaili Muslims, they supported the ban too. It's complete nonsense. There are many countries around the world, Muslim countries even, who have niqab bans far more aggressive than this. Our proposed niqab ban, well, it wasn't a fact for a few years, was the, the weakest, most watered-down niqab ban that's ever existed. It's basically saying throughout all of the minutes in your life that you're going to live, we'd like you to take your niqab off for about 90 seconds. And that somehow, in the governor general's terms, is us engaging in small-minded initiatives. And, and, and he's really, I, I think he's really mowing down the core of conservative values when, when he actually makes that comment too. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's a disappointing um, finish to his career. I, I think for the most part, he's held himself out and, and performed his tasks well. 
But I agree. And, and I don't think he's in the office that much longer unless he's reappointed for some reason. So uh, to me, I think this is a, a blemish on an otherwise good career. It's a shame. And I just want to add, I, I, the fact that Peter Mansbridge is sort of acting like he's their equals in these interviews, like he did in the Trudeau interview, it, it's, it's really starting to bother me. <laughs> there, there's lots about Peter Mansbridge that bothers me. Anthony Fury, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Brian. Take care. All right. Enjoy the weekend. It is a gorgeous weekend here in Ottawa. I uh, hope you're out and about and enjoying the weather. And uh, if you happen to be inside, you happen to be near the web, well, let me know what you think on this. Beyond the news at CFRA.com or Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Back in moments. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. One last gamer. Bryant on the move with the jumper. He oh, All right, that is the last shot by Kobe Bryant as he retires after 20 years with the L.A. Lakers. Uh, Elias Elzane is a producer here at CFRA. He's also co-host. Yeah. Okay, co-host of the podcast Three in the Key joins me now in studio, and um, I'm not a huge basketball fan. I always enjoy it when I see it, but you're nuts for the game. I mean, you wear a Lakers toque all winter. Yes, one of the few that I have. Okay, I was going to say, I hope you have more than one, because otherwise it's going to stand up and walk out at the end of winter, like now. (laughs) I actually wore it again today. Oh, man. (laughs) So you are such a huge Lakers fan, have been for years. Uh, Tell me about... uh, Personally, how you feel about Kobe retiring after 20 years in the game, 20 years with the Lakers, and just an incredible career. Yeah, it's the end of a legacy, to say the least. It's tough to... It still hasn't really sunk in to me. I'm still riding that wave, that last game, the 60-point performance by Kobe where he played the whole second half except for the last four seconds when he, he got subbed off to that unbelievable standing O. But yeah, it's the end of a legacy, a man that's been there, who's gone on... Every time he stepped on the court, if he was hurt, uh, injured, whatever the case may be, he poured his his heart out uh, on the hardwood and left it all there. Even when the team wasn't as competitive uh, after Shaq uh, left in 2004, you know, between uh, 05 and uh, in 2008, Kobe went out and he was averaging over 30 points a night. Uh, willing his that whole team. career, his whole career average, 25 points a game. Yeah, 25 that, that, points. That's, yeah. that's amazing. It is. 20 years, 25 a night. He retires as the third uh, highest scoring in NBA history at 33,643 points. Wow. Only behind Karl Malone and uh, the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But yeah, truly, at the end of a legacy, the guy has done so much for the game on and off the court. You know, a lot of people hate him, but... As a fan, and just as a basketball fan in general, even if you're not a Laker fan, you have to respect. You might have hated him, hate him or love him, you have to respect uh, him. He, here's my view, unless, unless a player's a complete jerk, and I've never found that with Kobe Bryant, but unless a player's a com- complete jerk in any sport, they can be on the opposing team, they can be on the rival team. You just hate them for the duration of the game. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I don't get it. It's like Tom Brady. 
in football. People hate Tom Brady. I'm one of those guys. Yeah, what's wrong with you? <laughs> respect the man. I Listen to your own him. words. Yeah, no, I respect <laughs> him. I respect his game. But I, like you said, when the game starts, I hate him. I hate him. I want him but, to lose. Exactly. But I respect his game. The guy's a legend quarterback. When, when, when the game starts. So Kobe Bryant, the game's not going to start for him anymore. Uh, what are his plans? I mean, what's the NBA do going forward? What, what, what does Kobe do going forward? Kobe started his own company called Kobe Inc., a few years ago when he was battling those injuries uh, with his Achilles, so he had lots of time off to himself. So that's what he's really going to do, I think, for at least one year, try to do, you know, has his hands in an in energy drink or something called body armor. Uh, so he'll probably do that with other athletes. And I think afterwards he'll come back to the game of basketball, but in a different way, maybe as a general manager or, you know, an advisor for the Lakers. I think he will still be in L.A. I don't think he goes to another organization just because he grew up as a diehard Laker fan and then to be traded there on draft night to the Lakers back in 1996 and, you know, having this great career for 20 years, I don't really see him going and working for any other organization. A lot of, lot of athletes want to become a coach when they retire. doesn't always work out for them. And Kobe's not a guy who's going to go in coaching. He's you said don't that, think he'll do no, that? No, he's too hard, like hard-headed. He would want too much out of the players. It would actually like probably drive players insane. The type <laughs> of stuff he try to demand out of them because that's what he gave to the game, and that's the only way he approaches it and understands it. So it's not everyone that has that mentality. I, Michael Jordan comes to mind. Here's a guy who was uh, in the same league. I'd say. Yeah, I, I still, you know, as much as a Kobe, for the time I watched basketball, he was my Jordan. Because I grew up, you know, Jordan was at the end of his career, the, the second 3 P. You're now, saying I'm older than you. Uh, well, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Not too much. You know? But, well, but yeah. I mean, Jor- Jordan was, for his time, what Kobe Bryant is to the game. Of when course. it's coaching, though. It didn't go so well for him in the No, and then arena. he was a general manager for the Wizards, and then he ended up playing for them, and now he's the owner of the Charlotte Hornets, and uh, that's where he's at now. That's where Kobe, I think, might maybe make a little more money in other, uh, in other things he has his hands in and then come back maybe as a, a stakeholder or a shareholder in the Lakers organization. But to be honest, I don't see Kobe, like I said, going to any other organization than than you, the Lakers. You know who you should go talk to? He should go talk to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why not? Made his fortune not through acting. He, he, he took all the money he got in acting. He invested it in real estate and businesses. Well, there you go. And Schwarzenegger is uh, rich from that, not acting. I want... tell, tell me about the, the TV audience the other night. Because as Kobe Bryant's playing his last game with the Lakers, there's another game going on. Yeah, the and, Warriors. Yeah. And the, so the Golden State Warriors going for a record number of wins 73 wins 73 and that's that's a big deal Kobe still outdrawing them yeah 73 wins and they did get it they got off to a hot start and you know we're leading by 20 so I guess more people you know when they heard or went on Twitter and so oh my god Kobe's killing it Kobe's on fire you know you want to see Kobe do that for <laughs> one more time before the man hangs it up forever so yeah Kobe peaked at the highest was I think 5.3 million ESPN uh, said that that's what the peak audience was for the Lakers game compared to just over four for Golden State. You know, it's still, still it's uh, millions of people watching yeah. basketball. Historic night, but mm-hmm. the one thing for the Warriors will live on in history of the regular season in the NBA forever. Seventy three wins. I don't know if that will ever get done. Seventy three and nine, but seventy three and nine is a thing, and it sounds nice, but it's nothing without a ring. <laughs> and are so, they gonna? I think so. Yeah, I think they'll repeat.
they have to, man. They got to get these 16 wins are going to be more important and mean more than the 73 that they just got. All right, l- let me ask you this. You're a huge basketball fan. Where was the first NBA game ever played? Toronto. Okay, good. You know that. You know how many people have stumped on that? The Probably Tor- a lot. A lot. Toronto Huskies against the, the New York, New York Knicks. Knicks. Yeah, Knickerbockers. Knickerbockers. Now the Knicks. At uh, the Maple Leaf Garden. And, and you've never you've never been a, a Raptors fan? I do cheer for them because they're the only Canadian team. And if I had to pick an Eastern Conference team, it is the Raptors. All right, there we go. Elias Elzane, producer and the uh, co-host, co-host of... Three in the key. Three, three in the key. Where can people find that if they want to listen to the podcast, if they're b-ball fans? You can go to Facebook, just Facebook, three in the key, or on Twitter at Basketpod. And if you go to SoundCloud, just write in three in the key, and you'll see us all our episodes yeah, That's are where there. I put my stuff, SoundCloud. Yeah, Good stuff. Go. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Stick around. Plenty more to come. In, in the meantime, my Facebook page, it's uh, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, but not much basketball on there. Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. That was fun talking uh, a little basketball with Elias. A little bit of a Friday, um, a little bit of relaxation on a Friday. As I said earlier, that's Still not the greatest sporting thing for me. That would be um, 141 days, 18 hours, 54 minutes, 24 seconds, and counting down until Notre Dame starts. Now, if you are a CFL fan, and I am an, an all-football fan, the Red Blacks, is it June 8th? I need to bring that up right now. Red Blacks schedule. Let's see. Isn't Google an amazing thing? February 18th, they released their schedule. What is it? Where is it? I believe it is June 8th that uh, we actually get to see the Red Blacks start again. That may be the preseason. Uh, June 13th is preseason. Sorry. Preseason week two, June 17th. And then Saturday, June 25th, Ottawa at Edmonton. Then Ottawa at Montreal, and the home opener is in week three. It's July 8th. My apologies. July 8th, Calgary comes to town, and uh, we get to uh, to kick some Stampeder butt. Funny story. Uh, when I worked at Sun News, we had a big bureau in Calgary. One of the cameramen there was from Saskatchewan. And he told me there were so many people from Saskatchewan there that there were there was more uh, Rough Rider gear, the Green Riders, as we call them here in Ottawa. There was more Green Rider gear for sale in the local sports store at Canadian Tire. Anywhere you'd get the football gear, the Green Rider stuff outsold the Stampeders. And the Stampeders dropped, dropped pretty darn well. But they were just outnumbered, it appeared. July 8th, home opener for the Red Blacks, and then... September 4th, the uh, season opener at Texas for Notre Dame. 21 days, as I said earlier, to the uh, opening of the Kentucky Derby. The fastest two minutes in sports. We've been talking all week about the story out of Halifax. This is a story that broke last weekend in the Halifax Chronicle Herald. 
and it was about problems at a school where a number of the Syrian refugee kids have gone. As Ezra and I, Ezra Levant and I talked from the rebel.media the other day, we talked about this on air. We both have kids. We both have kids in school. Kids are going to fight. It's going to happen. So that's not remarkable. But what's remarkable was the newspaper was attacked. They were accused of printing yellow journalism, engaging in yellow journalism, because they dared to put out a story that said that there were Syrian Muslim kids that the behavior was not going well, that some of them were attacking others and saying Muslims will rule the world, even though they had several sources. They were attacked, not on the facts, but on how dare you print this. Racists will use this. Well, the newspaper pulled the story down and then wouldn't talk, and the school board wouldn't talk. We wanted to know the truth. You heard from Faith Goldie last night. She teed up what was going on. You can watch this whole story at therebel.media. If you want to see all of her stuff, it, it's behind the paywall, so it's a membership thing. But I wanted to bring you the part of the story that she and the Rebel have released publicly and let you hear, in the words of those involved, what actually went down. As soon as the article came out, everybody instantly started to discredit it. Nobody actually took in the fact that these kids may be getting hurt at the school. An article published in the Halifax Chronicle Herald on Friday, citing allegations of refugee students bullying, slapping, and choking their peers at Shabukto Heights Elementary School in Halifax, Nova Scotia. A story too inconceivable, too uncomfortable. No one bothered to check if it was true. While the mainstream media discredited this article on Twitter and the paper itself scrambled to take the article down, I traveled to Halifax on the hunt for truth. I went free of agenda. In fact, I hoped to discover children were not being choked, not being slapped. I hoped to learn that assimilation of our migrant newcomers was going well, especially in our Canadian schools. Now, what I'm about to share with you is what I discovered while in Halifax, where I met in person with parents, grandparents, a student witness, and school board representatives. We sat down with Missy, a mother quoted in the original story, who asked that her voice be altered in our recorded interview. She feared backlash and being branded a bigot, which she said is far from the truth. It wasn't long ago Missy was looking forward to the arrival of her children's new classmates. I did um, a clothing drive when they first came. I, I did basic needs and clothing drive. Like, I'm all for the transition. I just can't let this keep happening. Something has to be done about it. Missy first went to the Herald on Friday. In our sit-down interview, she told me she went to media to make a public plea for more resources for refugees at her school. They need help at the school. They need communicators, interpreters, teachers, and more than one Monday to Friday. They can't have an interpreter up there two days a week. There's kids, there's kids that speak Arabic five days a week. She felt she had run out of options at the school after learning her daughter was allegedly choked twice in one week by two different refugee students. They said in the paper she was choked twice with canes two different times. Yep. That wasn't what was said. She was choked twice, but once with the necklace. Okay, so the necklace was on Monday. Yes. And then on Thursday... She was choked with her hands. Like, it was just a bunch of little stories 
that kept adding up, and I'm like, this is enough. Like, once or twice it happens, maybe it was just rough play, but it's happening a lot. And, like, it hasn't just been this week. There's been numerous things that have happened, like, not just with my kids. They stopped in Ramiro's and soccer at the school due to rough play in the school grounds. The kids are being slammed to the ground and choked and hit. Like, it's not fair. With such serious allegations of student refugee aggression towards their peers, I asked Missy if parents contacted the school regarding these claims. Are the school authorities even aware of what is allegedly happening on their grounds? Well, we went up on Monday, or no, Friday, to talk to the principal about the, the choking with the necklace. She had said um, that her hands are tied. She's been fighting with her supervisor to try to get um, interpreters up there because she couldn't even, this ha stuff happened on Monday, she couldn't contact those kids' parents. And this was here Friday. That's been a whole week that that wasn't addressed. Missy told me addressing bullying of any sort is a problem at the school, but now there seems to be a double standard at play. If we, if our students did, our kids did that to these students, it'd be a hate crime. It would be something bad, like really, really bad. And now that we're addressing this problem because it's our children being involved. We're still the bad person. Like, it's, there's no win to it. And everybody's scared to come forward and say something because of what happened with that article. After meeting with Missy, I talked to the other mother quoted in the Herald's original article. She didn't want to reveal her name or go on camera out of fear, but was willing to talk to us on the phone. Here's her daughter's side of the story. She was slapped. She was slapped in the face by one of the refugee boys over a disagreement in the yard. I guess she had a crush on him, and he didn't like that, so he slapped her in the face, and he left a red mark. I asked this mother how she reacted when the Chronicle Herald pulled their story. Oh, it infuriates me because, you know, I'm doing everything I can to protect my child. I've went to the school numerous times, and nothing's done. And this was my last hope. So, like Missy, this mother alleges she informed the school about the physical incidents. But nothing was done. Well, just one hour before my cameraman and I were set to depart Halifax, I received another tip. A phone number for a woman named Hetty, grandmother to a girl in grade 6 at Shabakdo Heights Elementary. Now, Hetty gave us permission to speak to her granddaughter and to use her first name on camera while in the grandmother's presence, while we obtained identical permission from the girl's mother, who only asked that her face be covered for the girl's protection. Now, we ensured the student understood the nature of our visit and how the film would be distributed. We also checked in again at the end of our interview to ensure the young girl was comfortable with the footage we obtained. Here's how Lakin describes just one situation she found herself in at her Halifax elementary school. One of the guys in my class tried to like push me over and then I pushed him back and then, well, the girl that was beside me, he went like that to her neck and like held her up. I told him, I said la because that's, that means no in um, Arabic. So I kept on saying that, but he kept on doing it and I didn't know what to do. Like the two other mothers we spoke to before her, Hetty says more resources would help alleviate tensions at the school. We're trying and we're welcoming them here. We're not prejudiced or nothing like that. They're, they're humans the same as we are. But when you come, you have to learn to get along with everybody. And what I think they need to do is put a place for the, the children that they can learn our culture and plus our language before putting into our schools. 
Now, I asked Lakin if she noticed a change in the nature of bullying at the school since her new classmates had arrived. Did you ever have choking in your school before the refugee students arrived? No, don't think. How often are these things happening? Like, every day. So, how do you feel going to school? I kind of feel scared because I don't know what they're going to do next. And then this. Lakin describes an alleged commotion on school grounds just days before our interview. I think it was um, Friday or Thursday. Um, there was this, like, big, big fight. And all these, um, like, the, can the Canadian people, and then, like, we're, like, in, like, one big group. It was and then, riot like, it was, Yeah, and then, like, everyone, like, from here was saying, like, we want freedom and stuff, like, chanting it. And, um, yeah. Okay. And because, like, um, these, um, these, like, boys and stuff are, like, really rough. And they Which always... Which boys? Um, like, all the boys. Okay. Like, the even, like, the boys? little ones. Like, the refugee boys or the Canadian boys? The refugees. Okay. And, like, like they're really rough. Like, they're rough with all the girls. Like, when we play soccer, because we always play soccer, like, every lunch and recess, the, the principal and the vice principal took that away, and now we have, like, nothing to do, because we don't have no playgrounds or nothing. Lakin says teachers and the principal are well aware of the situation, but offer little in the way of recourse. Everyone's always like saying, like, like going to the principal and telling them like that they're bullying them, and like the teachers just don't do anything about it. And like Missy, when it comes to bullying, Lakin says the rules are not one size fits all. If you if you did the same things that the refugee kids were doing right now, would you be in more trouble than they are getting? Most definitely. Why do you say that? Um. Okay. Say that. Um. I kick someone or something, and then one of the refugees kicks someone. I would get sent down to the office. They would get sent to their chair. Why do you think that happens? Because they're new and they're refugees. Four sources with similar allegations. A school-wide problem only getting worse with a principal and teachers allegedly in the know with double standards being applied daily. While in Halifax, I also reached out to school authorities. I wanted to hear their side of the story. I contacted the principal, Leslie McInnes. I left several messages with the school secretary requesting an interview. I made the same request in an email to that principal in which I outlined the allegations relayed to me. The email response I received cited parent-principal confidentiality. So I went in person and was told that the principal was again unavailable. I sent another email with further questions and, well, I have yet to receive a reply. I also requested an interview with the Halifax Regional School Board's superintendent, Elwin LaRue. He said in an email response that he was unavailable, but pointed to his message posted on the school board's website, which references, quote, unsubstantiated accusations out of Shabucto Heights Elementary School. I emailed the superintendent about the specifics of the allegations shared with me. I asked how his office determined that these accusations were unsubstantiated and whether they had been in touch with the principal, with parents, with teachers about these allegations. Again, I received no email in return.
And so I reached out to Halifax Regional School Board spokesperson, Doug Hadley. He was willing to go on camera. Okay, so if you want to see the rest of Faith Goldie's report, you can find it at therebel.media. I'll make sure that during the break I post it on my Facebook page as well. But I wanted you to hear from the students themselves. I wanted you to hear from the children. I wanted you to hear from the parents involved. People who said, I'm not trying to, to cast aspersions on people. I welcome the refugees, but there's a problem here. This is a story not so much about the refugees. Kids are kids, kids will fight. This is a story about how the media jumped on someone, jumped on a publication that dared to question whether everything was hunky-dory. You have to wonder, would the same thing happen here? What would happen if this was going on in one of our local schools? Would the story be told? Would it be shut down? I have to wonder about that. I would hope not. But in Halifax, it was shut down, and then the rest of the media that criticized them turned a blind eye to the truth. They didn't want to know the truth. As it says in that old movie, you can't handle the truth. But we can. I know you can. That's why we did the story at The Rebel. Go to therebel.media to check it out. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. More when we come back. Insurgent, believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. I am pigging out on deli meat and arancciata and cheese. I'm just too much of a good thing, maybe. Too much. I mentioned earlier that I'd run over to La Bottega for something. And Jeremy uh, emailed in to say, you haven't lived until you've had their Italian cheese. Well, that's what I'm eating, Jeremy. That's what I'm eating. I'm eating Pecorino Romano. Now, if you don't know what Pecorino Romano is, Romano is the type of cheese. And I only found out recently that Pecorino means it's made with sheep's milk. So there's lots of different types of Pecorino. But Romano is like uh, Parmesan, but better. Because it comes from Rome, not Parma. What am I talking about? I haven't been to either. But uh, the Romano, is a, it's a sharper taste to it. You don't need as much of it. it you know, if, you, if you like putting Parmesan on your spaghetti, on your pasta, you don't need as much. You can put on even more if you want, but you don't need as much because it's, it's got a really nice, clean, sharp taste to it. It's fantastic. I, I've been using this instead of Parmesan for, I don't know, maybe 20, 20 to 25 years in that range. A little, little bit of time now. It's good. Jeremy also wrote in and was asking about the whole issue of uh, Faith Goldie's full report. You just heard Faith do her report on Halifax. She talked to the parents involved. She talked to one of the kids involved. If you watch her full report, she spoke to school board officials as well. And Jeremy wanted to know, would I be putting the full uh, hour-long show up? No. No, I won't. Not on Facebook, but you will be able to find a big chunk of it, but not the full show. 
because uh, the Rebel is uh, supported by subscribers and donors and, and members. And so if you want to see all of that stuff, most of what we produce is out there for free for everyone. And then there's some material that uh, you've got to be a member for. It's a premium content. So that's there. Um, yeah. If you want to, if you can, great. If not, you'll get the gist of it. And make sure that you share this thing. When I post it on Facebook, make sure that you are on Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly and you hit share, not like. If you hit like, your friends will see that you liked something. But if you, if you watch it and you're like, yeah, people have to see this, people have to know about it, hit share so that they, your friends will see it. Your friends will get it in their feed and then they'll know the truth because there's, there is a complete silence on this story and that's disturbing. Oddly enough, there's also, it's not so much a silence, but I do want to hear, I do want to hear from you um, when we open up the phone lines. You can call in now if you want, Uh, but when we go to the phone lines at uh, the next uh, hour, I want to find out from you what you think about this Supreme Court ruling. It's mostly being described as, the court rejects the tough-on-crime measures of the conservatives. They're not really pointing out that they struck down a one-year mandatory minimum sentence. One year for repeat drug offenders. Not not just drug offenders, sorry. Drug traffickers, drug dealers, drug pushers. One-year mandatory minimum is cruel and unusual punishment. you just hearing that they struck down Tory tough-on-crime legislation because they're not talking about the substance of the issue. See, here I talk about the substance of issues. I don't look at politics as just a horse race. I don't look at politics as just who's ahead, who's behind, what's the strategy. That's what other guys do. That's what the guy on the TV next to me is doing right now. I want to talk about the substance of the issue. Is a one-year sentence, as a minimum, cruel and unusual punishment for repeat drug dealers? Convicted drug dealers? I don't think so, and I doubt you do either. A couple of people couldn't figure out the whole issue of where the petition is. It's jaildrugdealers.ca. Jaildrugdealers.ca. We'll get into more of that when we come back. You can email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com, or call in now, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back in moments. With Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Did you know that Bill Nye, the science guy, not actually a scientist? It's true. I found this out because I was reading up on a story about Sarah Palin mocking Bill Nye, the science guy. Now, Bill Nye has come out and said if you... um, you're a climate denier, you know, we should consider putting these people in jail. CNN's all the buzz about Sarah Palin mocking Bill Nye, the science guy. And she quote, they quote her right off the top. Bill Nye is as much a scientist as I am. He's a kid show actor. He's not a scientist. So I decided to look it up. Is he a scientist? 
Is he like David Suzuki, where he claims to be this mega scientist when really he's a fruit fly expert? No, it turns out Bill Nye uh, is not, not a full-on scientist. He went to uh, Cornell University, not far from here, just south. Uh, he studied mechanical engineering. I have no issue with mechanical engineers, but not a scientist. Not a scientist. So Sarah Palin's right. He's as much a scientist as she is. Now, had an email from Owen, and you can email me, beyondthenews at CFRA.com, upset because I, I played the, the story of what happened in Halifax and talked about how there's media silence. And Owen says, well, there's media silence on the co-founder of Black Lives Matters Toronto uh, being racist and putting out racist tweets. I pointed out that, okay, it hasn't been covered on CFRA, but it's a Toronto story, and I pointed out to stories from the likes of The Rebel that have covered this. Yusa Kogali, a.k.a. Yusa Ali, is a Black Lives Matters organizer in Toronto who tweeted out a little while ago, please, Allah, give me the strength not to cuss, kill these men and white folks out here today. Please, please, please. She's still getting meetings with the premier. If you want to find the stories, you can just, uh, you can find them. David Menzies covered this on The Rebel, and uh, it's disturbing. Absolutely it is. But then, then again, Black Lives Matters, founded by a guy who is white pretending to be black, a guy named Sean King. The guy has been exposed as, uh, like this um, Rachel Donziel, who was a local rep for the NAACP, actually white pretending to be black. Doesn't matter, except they're the ones making race a big thing. It's all very bizarre. I'm not going to pretend I understand it. 521-TALK, 521-TALK. 8255 star 580 on Bell Mobility. You have anything to say on the issues that I've been talking about tonight, the issues that we've been jawing about? Give me a call or email me. Give me heck for not covering it. Um, like, say, not covering enough about the Kentucky Derby. Oh, we'll cover that as it gets closer, trust me, including how to make a good mint julep. In fact, I think I'll do a whole segment just on how to make a good mint julep. But that'll be later on. That'll be in May. Right now, you're calling in on on uh, the Supreme Court and the sentences for drug dealers being too harsh, being cruel and unusual punishment. I want to hear from you. 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. Or if you want to call in on other issues such as uh, Anthony Fury and I talking about the Governor General, making very political comments about the NACAB. You want to call in about what's happening down in, um, in uh, Halifax. You want to call in about Kobe Bryant? We'll take your calls. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Alan in Ottawa. Hi. Hi. Um, considering uh, I've lived beside drug dealers, one year is not nearly enough time. Take your times up by 10. Because, because they need more punishment or need more oh, treatment? a lot more punishment. Because they make the lives of everybody that lives in the building where they live, Alice. You get people knocking Explain a little bit. Tell, tell, me, tell me how and why. All right. Uh, it knocks on your door at 3 in the morning. They think they get mixed up which door it is to go to. 
you, you hear the slam. Well, I used to live in Vanier, a two-story apartment building. And I used to live right near the back door. And you could pretty much count every 10 minutes that door would slam shut one more time. That's no from mat. all the people coming in and out at all hours. Oh, yeah, exactly. You get people ringing to get into the building. Um, you have people shooting up in the backyard. You know, so, I don't know how much worse it can get than that. Yeah, no, I I understand. So let me ask you, though. We keep hearing that if we want to be compassionate, then these people should get treatment. If if you're going for less than a year, there's no chance you're getting any treatment while you're in jail. There's no rehabilitation when you're there I, for less than a year. I realize that, but... So uh, I'm just trying to use their use mental judo on them. The same people that would say, well, this is cruel and unusual punishment, would say we've got to give them treatment and in rehabilitation. Well, then spend enough time in jail and quit whining about the one one freaking year, Alan. Oh, I agree with you 100%. You know, um, I had 50 complaints against one of my neighbors. 50, at least. Wow. And they were still living beside us. It, was it... Were you fearful living next to a, oh, a yeah, drug dealer? Of course. You didn't know what you were walk, walking into in the morning. You know, uh, I sometimes had to walk my dog at night. You know, I had to give gold, so I had to get up at basically all times through the night and to be sure for cars out in the parking lot. And God knows what was happening in those. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is OCH. And they did not do a whole lot about it. They said, oh, mark down, uh, you know, who's coming in and out. That's not my job. That's their job. Unreal. Yep. Unreal. I, I hope well, the situation's better for you now, Alan. Oh, it is. I, I have a beautiful place now. Okay. Good stuff. Um, want to hear from you. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. What do you think about the Supreme Court and their striking down of this so-called Cruel and unusual punishment of one year for repeat drug traffickers. Peter, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Yeah, I'm disappointed about that uh, Supreme Court decision. Uh, my point is that um, what uh, whether they get six months or a year, I mean, for example, there's two different cases. There's one case of a drug dealer, and, and, and how, do we, how do we intervene or how do we uh, rehab a drug dealer? And possibly he was a previous drug user. And then how do we deal with rehab, the drug, the hardcore drug users? So if we could make our jails more uh, effective as far as the rehab methods that we try to use, we might be able to, to you know, create some benefit and solve some of these hardcore cases in six months or in a year. But if we're just putting people in for one year, two year, three year, four years into an empty shell where people are on the showers, and they're getting all kinds of mixed messages from, from Parliament Hill about, oh, well, it's medical marijuana. and Oh, no, no, it's all coming legal soon, and there's factories that are ready to go. And then you got Yasser Naxi, the Minister of Corrections, saying, well, it's not about uh, warehousing people. It's about preventing this. There's so much confusion. And it's being put out there deliberately um, to, to muddy the waters. I mean, you're gonna, I mean go to the Bywood Market. I was there last night. These restaurants are paying thousands of dollars in rent, and yet you walk around and you 
you see somebody smoking a joint or walking down the street. Okay, now if I'm coming from the, from the United States as a tourist this summer with my family, and I'm walking down the street, we're in my American city and you can't do that, and I'm here in Ottawa and I smell it, marijuana it's going everywhere. around every corner, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to feel safe and spend my money in Ottawa? Well, uh, I don't. I don't think you have too much to worry about from the the dopeheads walking down the street smoking pot. But I do think that someone like this guy, John, uh, or sorry, Joseph uh, Lloyd, is convicted for the second time of trafficking. This time with crack, meth, and heroin. Guys like that are dangerous and deserve to be locked up. And the Supreme Court using a hypothetical situation that was not in front of them. They were ruling on something that was in their minds. Exactly. And these are issues that should be put to a referendum. Uh, The governments of the day here in Canada, they're terrified of putting things to the people in a form of a referendum because they know exactly that the people are going to vote exactly the opposite of what the government is pushing. All right. Thanks for the call, Peter. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to get on the line? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or you can email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Have you joined the resistance? Have you signed the petition? The petition, jaildrugdealers.ca. You can find it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. That whole issue that um, Owen was emailing in about the, uh, the Black Lives Matter organizer in Toronto, Yusra Kogali, who tweeted out, uh, please give me the strength not to kill these men and white people and then got a meeting with Premier Wynne. So I went to her Twitter to see if it's still up there. She's now blocked anyone uh, from following her that she doesn't personally approve. Hmm, interesting that. You tweet something racist, something potentially violent, something could be considered hateful. It gets caught by the media. All of a sudden, your Twitter account's private. Should have thought of that before you did this garbage. Uh, And then I looked up, you know, I I had said that Sean King, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matters, the original movement in uh, the States, that he's white. Yeah, there's a story. It goes back to last summer. He's white. He says he's not. But um, Don Lemon on CNN, who is black, has interviewed his family members. because, Yeah, no, both his parents were white. Absolutely both his parents were white. Oddities. Oddities with this bizarre movement. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Uh, Let's go to Rick in Orleans. You're emailing Justin Trudeau and not getting a response? Hello. Hello, Rick. Yeah, hi. I've talked to you once before. It was on another issue with the ORPP, which, you know, is totally different. No, no, I I did get a response from... uh, you know, the prime minister's office, it only took uh, 10 weeks, but I mean, it's basically <laughs> a non-response. No, but Wait, what, what did in, you email him about? Well, I, I emailed him back in early February about that uh, 
speech. I forget where it was now, but, you know, I mean, I'm a retired guy. I'm 60 years old, okay? So I got a lot of time on my hands. Retired at 60? I'll never do that. But in any case, (laughs) um, he made a speech about, you know, he wants Canada to be known about its resourcefulness rather than its resources. Oh, yeah. And, And that, you know, that really hit a vein within me because, you know, we are a, a country with an abundance of resources, but these resources were not extracted with pick and shovel. It took engineers, geologists, metallurgists, architects, uh, you know, uh, electricians, everything to make it happen, to build these fantastic, you know, machinery to bring this stuff to market. And anyways, it just really kind of ticked me off. As it should. And not with, you know, and, you know, I have to admit right up front that I actually voted for Andrew Leslie in Orleans in the last election Uh. against against my better judgment. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) anyways, but I did. And and, you know. And, I mean, it was a very well-written email and, uh, you know, talked about hard work and education. And all I got, you know, 10 weeks later, on behalf of the right honorable, blah, blah, I'd like to acknowledge the receipt. I regret the delay. Thank you for writing. Prime Minister welcomes the views of Canadians on issues that are important to them, whether supportive or critical. You may be assured your comments and suggestions have been duly noted and appreciated. That's a non-answer. Now, I I used to... It ticks me off. I I used to get CC'd on an awful lot of um, email responses, or people would forward me the email responses that they would get from... Well, I wanted uh, to just send you this without even calling, but I couldn't find the email to forward this whole thing to you. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want a phone, but... No worries. It's beyondthenews at CFRA.com. But let let me just tell you quickly, uh, Stephen Harper... I mean, every prime minister has a whole section of their office just devoted to correspondence oh, no, because they get that. so I, I much of it, right? I work for the feds for so, 34 years, you know. Yeah. I know you don't like to hear that because no. I got this big pension and all that jazz, but no, no. You know, that's another story. That, that, I worked that, for CRA for 34 years, you know. Someone's got to collect the money there, Rick. There you go. Uh, <laughs> like, and, and, and I'm got, not a spender, I'm a collector. Yeah, got a friend out in Orleans. He's still with uh, with CRA and, and looking at retiring soon. But let me tell you this. Uh, Harper's office, I used to encourage people to email uh, the PM's office when Stephen Harper was there rather than the ministers because the PMO keeps track of all the issues that uh, the people are contacting them about. And then most of the time, the only response they would get is, Thank you for your email. We've raised the issue or passed your issue on to Minister So-and-so, who's the minister in charge. Yes. Well, Again, a bit of a non-response. But the reason I I would—hold on. Let let me just finish this bit. The reason I would tell people to do that is because the PMO keeps track of these issues, and if one of their ministers is constantly being hounded about something, they might tell them, hey, clean up your act. You've got to do something here. Well, yeah, no, and actually, like, subsequent to this email, which was early February, I did send one 
to the Prime Minister's office when I heard that line, which I just could not believe. A Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. That really got under my skin because that was about, you know, taking away oh, they, they... citizenship to someone who already has another citizenship in another country and has been has been found guilty of a terrorist offense in this country. And these guys are saying, well, no, a Canadian, like, we're not going to do that. Well, I totally disagree. That's ridiculous. So I sent an email on that, and I, I got a, a response even sooner than this one. But it said, well, thank you very much, but this is going to Minister McCallum. Well, great, but I'll, I'll probably never get a response on that. But yeah. I don't well, agree. Yeah. I, I mean, and I'm sure there's many, many millions of Canadians that don't agree with that. I'll, That's uh, ridiculous. I'll try and look up the email address for the Prime Minister, and I'll share it with everyone, and I'll keep doing that. And then we can just bug him into submission. Rick, thanks for the call, and uh, thanks for your persistence with the PM. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. If you're on the line, stay there. We'll get to you soon. If you want to join, 521-SOCK, back after this. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All righty then. Getting ready for the weekend. Right now I'm shopping for cigars. I'm going to ask for your advice. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm adding a topic here. So if you have cigar advice, I want to hear. My folks are snowbirds, and they're down in the Tampa area right now. And when I was down in January, I picked up some cigars. The Ybor City is this district in Tampa that uh, they make hand-rolled cigars. It's an old Cuban district. People have been from Cuba have been settling there for well over 100 years. They call themselves the cigar capital of America. So they're going in to, to pick some up. So I've got to choose between buying Churchill's or Robusto's or uh, Corona's or uh, Mike Mike's or Torpedo's. i got to figure out. If anybody has cigar advice, I'll take it. Elizabeth, you're on Beyond the News. Do you have cigar advice, Elizabeth, or just the uh, Supreme no. Court? Okay. It's actually, none. They're <laughs> awful. I, I, no, I, I enjoy them else. once in a while. It's not a regular thing. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, I want to talk about this uh, jail sentence. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I agree with the guy who was on earlier that said that it should be ten times that. These guys, in in an indirect way, they are murderers. Yeah. If these pe- these kids are taking this stuff, and they're dying. Well, you know, I'm talking about smoking cigars, and you're saying I hope it's just once in a while. We regard tobacco companies. They're murderers. They're awful. Yeah. I think we're sometimes harder on that than we are on drug, on drug. drug traffickers. Yeah. And and these drug traffickers, they, I have them in my building, and they're in the, I live in the Jasmine area. Mm-hmm. And they are all over this area. Have you been at Jasmine a long time? 30 years. It, it, never, it wasn't like this before. No. When I moved in, it was a very nice, quiet area, and um, 
it, it was really pleasant to live here. And now, like, I'm not afraid to live here, but people are afraid to live here. And, I mean, I live close to the Gloucester Fruit Cupboard, and there's a nice little parking lot that they like to get into behind there. And they do they do their swaps behind there because it's closed most of the time. It's only open for, what, eight hours a week? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's a nice little quiet spot for them to do their, their swapping in. And um, there's, there's a lot that goes on around here. And there was a fourth shooting, which they haven't said anything about, but just before Christmas, there was a fourth shooting in the area, and the guy managed to survive. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, they're going on about three murders. Well, yes, these guys succumbed to their injuries. But that, this that's the guy one that, was serious, too. He, well, he only survived because the cops were able to save him. Yeah. And, and I mean, so there was four in the area in, in, in a year. And um, this, this place is riddled with... And it's due to drugs. Yeah. So we're worried about the gangs and the gun violence. Oh, well, poor, it, poor it, gang it, violence. It ha- poor guys. Oh, it happens because guys, of the they drugs. They have to spend a year in prison. Well, poor, poor guys. What about all those kids that are out in the streets suffering and dying because of them? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this ruling. You know, I, I'm wondering about some of these judges. I really wonder because... Um, getting off the subject a bit, but it's along the same lines as these sex offenders. They get a slap on the wrist and told not to do it again, and the people who they've abused are are left to suffer a lifelong time of um, agony. I mean, I know that's off the subject, but I I wonder about the, the judges in these courts. Well, I, I wonder how much they are involved in these activities. See, they ruled on what's called a reasonable hypothetical. You, Elizabeth, are dealing with real life, which they don't deal with in their ivory tower. Or are they dealing with it in, in, in reality in the fact that they are tied up with this stuff? Well, not at the Supreme Court level. Definitely oh, not. I don't know. That, I, I sometimes wonder... I really do sometimes Oh, do you, do you wonder, wonder if they're on drugs? <laughs> well, well, they may not be on the drugs, but they may be benefiting somewhere along the line. All right. I've got to leave it there. Thanks for the call, Elizabeth. Okay. Uh, George in the prior. In regards to Bill Nye, the science guy. Yes. Are you implying that an ordinary person cannot equal the quality of work of a scientist and it's a passum? No. Uh, I think she was making fun of him because he puts himself off as a scientist. And I think a lot of people, I didn't know he wasn't a scientist until today. His name is Bill Nye, the science guy. He must be a scientist. And when he speaks, the media treat him as a scientific authority. Mm-hmm. They they would never treat you as a scientific authority or me oh, as a scientific authority, authority. They would say, well, that's George's opinion or that's Brian's opinion. But they don't treat us as scientific authorities, but they do Bill Nye, the science guy, and David Suzuki, the fruit fly guy. Cause my, uh, I used to have a hobby of science, eh? And, I, and I, I didn't become a scientist, but I became an expert in one particular field that nobody would even touch me in. What's that? Psych- psychic images. I managed to figure out how, how the psychics were able to see them. 
Okay. Since I figured it out, keep the secret and don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call, George. All right. Let's go to Norma in Orleans. Hello, Brian. Hello, Norma. Hi. Listen, I hope it's not too retro. I just want to go back. I think it's Faith Goldie's report from Halifax. Oh, well, that was still on tonight, so that's not retro at all. Okay, well, I hope not. Well, I just got back uh, from there nine days ago. We were visiting our grandchildren and family there. And I have to say that the bad news is not reported at all on local media. We have There were wonderful stories about how these Arab-speaking children were translating for their fellow students. And yet I know there's a problem because our daughter-in-law is employed by the school board and she knows that, there's a, that there is a problem there with integrating the, the, the refugees. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, do, I, I just but, find it, it, there seems to be a veil that comes down that, uh, uh, well, sort of the local radio and local television stations were very averse to reporting anything negative at all about refugees. And I think that we need to have the whole story so that we're able to integrate properly. Do, did you hear in Faith's report where the mother said, we need more resources even the grandmother that was on with the child, we need more resources to help them integrate. These, oh, were, yeah. these were not people that were saying, bad refugees, we shouldn't have refugees, this is awful. They were saying, we've got a problem, we need, we need help for them, but they're still shut out, Norma. Brian, as if, may I Haligonians, Hal- uh, you know, all Maritimers are very, very welcoming to these refugees that, that I know a lot of people there, church friends of mine, who have, you know, privately sponsored refugees, and they're really eager to make it work. But I think that we have to be okay. honest in what's going on. And uh, okay, Right, the, but Norma, you just mentioned church friends of yours that have helped sponsor refugees. Yes. That's not the majority of the refugees, and there's a big difference. And... And I'm not saying that the government-sponsored refugees are worse people or not, but there's a difference in how they're treated when they get to Canada. Well, I, I, at, I, at my I, parish on the weekend, there were families fighting over taking the refugee family that they sponsored out to breakfast after Mass. Can we take uh-huh. you? Oh, we were going to take them out. People were, were like that. So they've got a community of support. They have a love of, uh, yes. A community of support around them to help them integrate. The government-sponsored refugees were promised the sun, the star, and the moon. And then they're brought to Canada. They were, they were first warehoused in hotels. Then they were shoved out into whatever housing they could find. And it, it, I don't know if you heard the story on CTV Ottawa just yesterday of them, uh, the, the Gloucester food cupboard. Oh, seeing yes. Thirty percent in, in, increase. And this is it. My, my daughter-in-law has a doctorate in education, and she works for the school board, and she's very concerned. But it's very hard to, uh, you know, in this politically correct universe, it's very hard to get things done. These mm-hmm. these children uh, have no language skills, and they're just being plopped into school. And, and of course, kids are going to fight. Kids fought when you went to school. They fought when I went to school. But there's a, there's a cover-up there because they don't want the truth getting out. Yeah, and it's hard. Not, I, 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 feel, I feel terribly sorry for all the children because these children just don't have the skills. You know, the new refugees, they don't have the skills. They don't have the language to express what they're feeling. And um, the kids who are, you know, uh, uh, 
sort of who, who've lived there all their lives are really concerned because they are being bullied. And, and, it's just, and, and it's they're a terrible getting situation. A, they're getting a double standard. Uh, you know, Norma, uh, I'll leave it at this. I couldn't, I couldn't place your accent until you said the word down. Oh, now don't you be doing <laughs> that to me. <laughs> okay. So where, where exactly are you from? You guess which county. Uh, Antrim? You're absolutely right, of okay. course. <laughs> Thank you very much for Thanks. the call. Bye. 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 I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More of your calls when we get back. 521-TALK, 521-8255. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So I'm leaning towards some Corona cigars. This website says at the end of a long day, nothing says relax and find yourself like a great cigar. This is that cigar started with a very pleasant, very easy and pleasant draw. The cigar immediately gives you a firm yet pleasant flavor. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on. But I'm here for your calls right now, um, not just my cigar uh, recommendations, although uh, yeah, I'm willing to take those if you got them. Gloria, you're on Beyond the News. you have any cigar recommendations? <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're very I, funny. I, I'm only asking the women this. <laughs> I will not I've take them from men. I've never had a cigar, so I, would, I can't recommend <laughs> any to you. Your, uh, your thoughts on the mandatory minimum sentences. Okay, first of all, can I just make a very, very quick comment about a comment about when John McCallum says about convicted uh, dual citizen uh, terrorists uh, that a Canadian, Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Yeah. Well, a terrorist is a terrorist is a terrorist. So I think he should wake up. Glor- yeah. to, to paraphrase um, John McCallum speaking to Michelle Rampel, Gloria, <laughs> you should smile and embrace sunny ways. Yeah. Oh, he sounds like he's... Uh, he smoked too many cigars. It was something funny. He, anyway. I, I believe he. I believe he smoked cigarettes. Uh, oh, does so he? On, on, on criminal okay, sentences, yes, of course. I think that there should be mandatory uh, story sentences for repeat offenders. Because how many times have you heard on the radio when the police have caught a, a criminal as they've been looking for that the criminals were known to the police? I love you know? that euphemism. Yeah, exactly. In that, other that, words, that's their way of saying they're. They're crooks. That's right. They're crooks, and they've been caught. They and and they're you know with this with the thing is with this, these out of touch, uh, soft on crime liberal judge judges. It it's it's just a revolving door for these criminals, and in no time at all, they're out on the streets again doing the same darn thing. And and you know they they, they put the public at danger. They endanger. They, I I feel they, these these uh, judges do. They're just so out of touch. Yeah, quick uh, comment on the cab before we move yes. on. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, uh, you know, the thing is, um, Canada, it, we are an open and accepting society with fair laws and customs, you know, that, that immigrants can easily adopt to. And and the NICAB, to me, should not be worn in, in public because part of our open society is that 
you show your face, it's it's as identification <laughs> of who you are and I, should apply to everyone. I love the people that say we're an open and inclusive society. That's why we embrace the kneecap. Look, if you we want, don't, I don't if, embrace the kneecap at all. I not, hope you didn't think that I said that. No, neither do I. And as I oh, said with you. Anthony, 78%. No, but the, the governor general did. 78% oh. of Canadians, though, say, wow. say they don't like it. You want to wear it up and down Bank Street? Have at her. I don't care. But if you go in for, I think the bank, my bank a while ago was saying if you're wearing a a ball cap, you have to take it off. They stopped an elderly man with a a walker and a fedora going into the bank. They said, sir, you can't go into the bank with your hat on because they'd had robberies. And, and and we inquired what happens if you come in with the cab because in the South End that's that's they a, allow it, a, it's a real they? issue and they said well we have to allow that no they don't no, so they don't. it's you know it, it's mixed up I I got to run Glory Brian but, Brian yeah. can I just say one quick thing the kneecap has nothing to do with religion although some people will have you believe it believe that it is it's only a way of dressing and the Quran mm-hmm. only states that women should dress modestly modestly it has nothing to do with religion at all it's it's they're full of baloney if they say anything like that. All right. Thanks for the call, Gloria. Thank you. Let's go to uh, Gary. Gary in Centertown. You're on Beyond the News. Ryan. Yes. <laughs> Have you found out anything about the uh, refugee thing that we talked about the other day at the school? Which one Downtown? are you talking about? Centertown School. My mind's drawn a blank for some reason, maybe oh, because it's well, Friday I can't, I'm not going to repeat it now. I... I, I I'm going to send you an email. What's the best way to send you an email? All right, send it to beyondthenews at cfra.com. Okay. Uh, uh, is there going to, are you going to be there the weekend somehow? Yeah. I, I or will, you can pick it up from there. Right, I will okay. check it out. Beyondthenews at cfra.com. Got you covered. All right. Thank you very kindly. Thank you. Bye now. Okay, let's go to uh, Guy in Nepean. You're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. I had the chance of meeting that lovely English lady, Elizabeth, on Jasmine Crescent on Sunday for Tim's Community Walk. She was just delightful. delightful. I I find most of the... most of the uh, the listeners are delightful. Yeah, I mean yourself, was... not so much, but yeah. most of the. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. <laughs> no, but she lives down in a bad. She owns her own place, a two bedroom home, and she lives right down by the food cupboard, and um, and the drug dealers use uh, the back uh, the food cupboard most of the time to do their to do their business. But anyways, I'm sure the police will look into that at some point. Um, yeah, no, just a light. I wanted to ask you, Brian. Um, are are is there going to be a steak on the barbecue in your future? Um, you know, this weekend. Uh, there there might be a cigar on oh, the weekend. It's you. getting warm enough, and uh, I've still got a couple left. My, my my folks come back to Canada next week. It's why I've been asking people. Uh, they've got to go and pick up my my cigars tomorrow. So I've got to order them tomorrow, and they get they pick them up in the afternoon. What are you going to get a Coronas, or are you going to get uh, Monte Cristos? Monte Cristos is my favorite. Uh, I don't think they sell Monte Cristo at the place I'm ordering from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll see if they sell something like it, because it's everything from one up to packages of 40. But you can only bring 50 cigars back. I didn't Um, know that. uh, I'm not sure I could smoke that many before they'd go Mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm just going to enjoy the beauty that is the nation's capital on a warm weekend. And it is, uh, I'm going to turn off the mind, relax, yes. and float downstream, Good as the Beatles you. said. What about everybody, yourself? Everybody is in such a much better mood, I've noticed, over the past day or so. I think there's just this big sigh of summer that's coming. But, uh, no, I wanted to hit you with my Friday night joke. Save one of those cigars for next week. Um, Jody Raybold is having another dinner with the Ontario Medical Association. Oh, yeah? 
it, yeah, how much a fundraiser. Is, how much is it, this one it, costing? It's, it's 750 bucks. but here's the good part. You know what they're calling it? What? Dining with Dignity. <laughs> oh, man. Good night, Brian. Good night. So the minister in charge of the legislation on assisted suicide now holding fundraisers with the uh, uh, the medical association. This after holding fundraisers with a bunch of lawyers that she's going to be appointing to stuff. This is unreal. This is unreal. I don't want to end on a politics note. Oh, God, you had me happy. Now I'm back on a politics Angry at liberals and their dirty fundraising. Uh, I'll make sure I post my, excuse me, my interview with uh, with Ray Hurd. That's the Aaron Chiata coming back and maybe some of the salami. Mm, so good. Uh, Ray Hurd and I had a chat uh, yesterday. Longtime liberal, but not afraid to take shots at his own side. Uh, my interview with Ray will be up on Facebook. The podcast will be up as well later tonight. If you don't get to catch an episode and you think, you know what, what was Brian saying on this? You can go to the podcast. You can find out. You can find the podcast on CFRA, or if you have um, an iPhone, you can subscribe uh, via podcast app on iPhone, or you can get a podcast app for Google. If you're on an Android phone, download it there. You don't have to miss it. Then you can have fun. <clears throat> you can have fun the whole time. If you want to send me cigar requests, I'm looking at some Robustos now, a mild Robusto. You know, I don't know what to get. I had some Coronas last time I was down. I'm torn. But if you have cigar uh, recommendations, beyond the news at CFRA.com, that's the way to get a hold of me here for anything that you want to chat about. Or, again, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly and the Twitter machine, which I infrequently jump onto, Twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. Until next week, enjoy the beautiful weather. Get some sunshine on your face. Relax and enjoy. Thanks for listening. And remember, I'm on your side. <laughs>